Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and we're here today with Courtney Adams-Wooten, Assistant Professor in the Department of English at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, to talk about her new book, Child-Free and Happy, Transforming the Rhetoric of Women's Reproductive Choices, out this year, 2023, with Utah State University Press. Hi, Courtney. How are you doing? Hi, it's good to be here with you. My morning, your afternoon. Afternoon, your morning. Yeah, oh, it's great. How's your summer coming through? Yeah, it's going well. I am having to put together my tenure packet for this fall, so that has kept me busy. But I um, have managed to get away for a few weeks, too, so that's been a nice break. Actually, it was kind of your way. Of, me and my husband were in Ireland a few weeks ago, so... We were enjoying the cruel weather. <laughs> Ireland, you know, it's funny because Ireland is that good, right? It's <laughs> the weather was beautiful. It was in the sixties the whole time. <laughs> yeah, the people are that nice. Like it's Ireland, actually all it's cracked up to be. It's it's ridiculous. Very nice. Yeah. Um. You know, it's it, summers usually just mean dedicated research time, and it's so important to get away and oh yeah, recharge. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, was, I I think it's important to let the subconscious do some work for a little bit, you know, it, it does a lot of stuff on its own. Yeah, and especially when you're talking, um, I suspect, especially for something like when you're thinking about gender roles, modern theory, when you're doing a lot of things, you know, that just can benefit from reflection and contemplation of a different surrounding. Yeah, yeah, being in different, um, I think being in different cultures can really help you rethink through sort of what are those forces kind of working on gender. I was um, uh, happy to go to uh, Mason's Korea campus, um, our Mason Korea campus in May. And so the, these two experiences together really help me sort of see things from these different new perspectives, which I think is really important to no matter what research we do. So sure, absolutely. Especially, I mean, because what you're dealing with are um, these scripts or doxi yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Like first thing, just tell us about that. What is it? What's a doxi? Like, yeah. doxa, several doxi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the concept of doxa really is just referring to the kind of embedded beliefs that often get passed through really imperceptible means. So um, gender doxa really are things that we might just absorb from the time we're children, 
um, and aren't necessarily things that are spoken out loud so much as things that we just come to believe are true um, about people and about ourselves. Um, so, um, so yeah, doxa in my mind is a fancy term <laughs> for beliefs or belief systems. Um, and so that's really the way I think about it when I think about that word. Right. And these like and the idea that they're not they may not be specifically said to you. Like, I mean, at some point your mother may have said, You'll be happier if you have children, but that's not that's not the the, the main. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I think for me and for a lot of the other women I interviewed in my book is that a lot of us grew up thinking we would have kids one day, and it wasn't like someone had when we were three or four or five said you're gonna have kids one day, but it was just sort of the assumption. You know, the belief was there that you know you were a woman and that was what you were going to do eventually was have children, um, and so. Yeah, I think I think that's a good example of the way Doxa works. It it could be something spoken out loud when you voice not wanting to have kids, and someone then says to you, "Oh, well, that seems very strange." But but you know the idea that um, that women grow up and they have children that that you know that's pretty ingrained in a lot of different cultures. Yeah, absolutely. That idea, like you'll get you'll grow up, you'll get married, you'll have children. And I don't know, like, at what point that becomes so clear, but it certainly is, you know, by the time we're not very old. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, so, like, what are the ones that we learned about reproduction and motherhood in particular? Like, what do we know? What's that? You, you'll grow up and have children, I think is probably. <laughs> yeah. That, you'll grow up and have children, I think, is a really big one. You know, I didn't explore this in my um, project, but one of the ones some of my interviewees talked about was that there was a series of steps, and one of those steps is you get married and then you have children, um, because I do think there are different kinds of stigmas around um, people who don't get married and have kids, um, people who have kids at earlier or later points than society says someone is supposed to, quote unquote. Um, so I, you know, I think those are there. I, I think. Um, I think with women, some of the underlying beliefs are really tied into, you know, patriarchal systems that are kind of impact everyone's lives. And I think some of those are this kind of idea that women are naturally, quote unquote, their bodies are naturally made to have children. And therefore, that is the thing that they should do eventually. Um, and I think that's a really persistent one that we see in all kinds of discussion about reproductive rights and um, laws um, is this idea that women's bodies are bodies made to have children. Um, and so I think that idea is a really persistent one alongside just this idea um, that women are caretakers naturally and that the best form of caretaking that women can express is taking care of their own children. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and so we talked about how maybe someone says it to you, but what are the other places where these ideas kind of can be transmitted. Like, what what do I look for? What else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a lot of places I feel like once you start, you know, your brain becomes attuned to sort of, uh, it's kind of like when you get a new car and suddenly you see all the other new cars that are like your new car. Um, so I think uh, the ideas come across really clearly in a lot of television shows and a lot of movies. Um, some of my interviewees talked about TV shows, um, like one of the mentioned bones in particular, uh, where the plot line sometimes will be that there is a main um, woman actress. Um, she was happy and fine and everything's fine. Um, she seems happy without children. And then she has a kid and suddenly that's, you know, 
she has an about face, you know, and um, and she suddenly really wants to have children. And it might be that she's met a particular person that she wants to have children with. Um, but but there will be this sort of really f- quick, rapid switch between, oh, no, I'm happy and I'm fine without children to oh, no, I really want to have a kid. And so um, some of my interviewees pointed to that as a kind of disappointing plot structure, um, you know, where the woman has really quickly changed her mind, which isn't something I think the women who I talked about or many women think would happen really quickly is this decision to suddenly, you know, either I want kids or I don't, and then to suddenly, you know, switch in the other direction. Um, I think the other thing a lot of uh, my interviewees pointed out is that so often um, women characters, adult women characters in television shows and movies have children or want to have children or there's a lot of um stigma placed on women so like the career woman is sort of a stereotype of a woman who doesn't want kids because we've got to figure out what is it what is this woman's deal if she doesn't want to have kids and so so you can see that kind of plot those plot devices or those stereotypes getting overlaid in a lot of tv shows um and movies yeah I was thinking about this when, um, after, but while reading the book, I started, you know, noticing other places, um, and I was thinking about the the sheer number of ads that anything adulthood that I see on television where people own homes, people are happy, people have cars, like anything that that signifies adulthood, children are part of that package. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me too of the car commercials, you know, where. Um, uh, a middle class family, like the father's gotten the mom a car for Christmas, but there's always kids, you know, waiting there. You know, it's like an SUV or it's a minivan, and there's kids there waiting for the mom to kind of whisk them away wherever they're gonna go. So, yeah, I think you can see it a lot of different places. This idea that adult womanhood is tied to motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And really quickly before we uh, let's get this little bit of business out of the way, your study in particular, can you tell me about just quickly about your methods and source base? I know it's the least interesting part. No, yeah, no, of course. So yeah, in my project, um, I uh, really uh, uh, think about Sarah Ahmed's idea of gendered happiness scripts as a way to think about what are the uh, reproductive scripts or belief systems that have been built up around women having children. Um, and what does it mean when adult women say, I don't want to have children because that's really going against the gendered happiness scripts that are embedded in so many cultures. So um, my methods then, I ended up interviewing 34 women, um, mostly from the United States, Canada, and the UK, um, about their experiences being child-free. Um, and a lot of my questions really revolved around the kinds of interactions they'd had with other people. So it wasn't a sociological study so much as a um, an interest in what are the kinds of um, ways of speaking about reproduction and speaking about gendered happiness scripts that kind of show up when women are interacting with other people. Right. I mean, so the script stories, I was thinking, you know, the yeah. We hear that we tell ourselves that we tell others, like, mm-hmm. right? That the the way we talk to one another and talk about it. Yeah, yeah, and I think for those interviewees, some of it too is how do you make, um, how do you make legible this choice not to have children, and then how do you talk about it to other people who may not understand your perspective at all? Um, and I think some of that is like 
with the stories, but also how do those stories potentially reshape other people's perceptions of the options that women have in front of them about the reproductive choices they might want to make? Yeah. So women are interacting with like these side to these unwritten kind of expectations, right? Decision process, and then exploring that and passing that on. Yeah. Yeah. And having to make really strategic choices sometimes about who am I interacting with? How do I want to try to pass on these stories? What stories am I willing to tell? You know, whether that's for my own comfort level, whether I think that's a story that someone will actually listen to or not. So, yeah, there's a lot of strategic choice making that get that happens, you know, as women are figuring out how do I pass on these stories and who am I passing them on to? Right. Which certainly women who have children have to do as well, because God knows women can't do. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. 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 I think that is an important point. I mean, I think my my book does focus on child-free women, but mothers are so embedded. I mean, you know, so, I mean, there have been other books written about that. There are many more books that could be written about it, but I think it is important to surface um, that, you know, the book is about child-free women, but I think any person could really gain a lot by just thinking about what are these scripts that are really affecting the ways we think about, um, yeah, where we think about our own selves and our own bodies and our own identities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I just saw Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's <for> <laughs> Thank you, America, for I'm thinking a lot more about like just the, the stuff that we have to tell each other. And, and adding um, something that goes against the grain, or at least rhetorically goes against against the grain, like child-free, requires this whole nother level, right? Um, but speaking of this, you, uh, I was surprised at the percentage of women her child, who are child-free in the U.S. What was oh it? God. 43.4? Was that it? Mm, no, no, it's smaller than that. Um, it's around 7 to 9% is sort of their best estimate. Um, I think that the 43% number is the number who don't have children, but that would be child-free, yeah, child-free women. It would be women who um, are unable or have been unable to have a child. So that number is quite high, um, but it encompasses child-free women and also any woman who happens to be child-free. Right, because she's too young. Or, I mean, this includes, I thought, I think it was 15 to 50, right? Yeah, so, right. It's people who've lost their children. But that's still, that's still a big chunk of women who are actively mothering. Right. To be considered such an outlier in behavior. Yeah. Yeah, not actively mothering in the ways that I think culture and society would say they need to mother. Because I think, you know, part of what my interviewees sort of, Part of the point is mothering can look a lot of different ways and doesn't have to mean, um, you know, that I have a child in my house 24-7 that I'm sort of taking care of. Um, there are, of course, aspects of mothering that are completely unique to that situation of having a child in your house 24-7 that you are responsible for. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it is really interesting the stigmas around not having your own children that you're constantly caring for when so many women actually aren't in that situation. Um, and and in some ways, I think this relates to kind of the, the silence that often women who experience miscarriages, um, you know, have felt is just the lack of um, breaking through some of those stigmas, the lack of um, 
breaking some of those beliefs by pointing out not all women want to or not all women are able to have children and mother, um, even in the ways that some women might want to. Right. So would it seven to nine percent of women who are able to have children and opt not to? Right. And and seven to nine percent of women who may or may not be able to have children because not every child-free woman has ever explored whether that's even, you know, possible. So so that's the percentage, um, but it's still a sort of guess percentage. Um, but it, it has been lined up, you know, that percentage has been lined up across multiple studies that have looked at, you know, different kinds of mechanisms. But there's no question in, like, the U.S. Census, for example, um, just to take a U.S. context, that specifically asks a question about that. And so we're having to rely on sort of other data sources. I mean, that's that's interesting, too. That's really telling, right? That, yeah. <laughs> that, that 40% of women are not actively doing this thing that we call mothering, but the assumption is that all of them chose not to have children for <laughs> selfish reasons. We'll get into in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when it, right in your introduction, you include these four snapshots, four women whose life experiences are very different and all of them were child-free. And this section really articulates kind of the, the many overlapping issues going around here, right? Yeah why women choose not to have children or don't have children mm -hmm. um and what what's what are you, what kind of generalizations can you make here I, and i know they are that <laughs> like about the things that make women that influence the decision women might have or how yeah yeah i mean i think you know those snapshots and then sort of the interview material from the rest of the book does show it's really hard to generalize so uh, you know i think there always has to be a big caveat about how generalizable you know can this kind of study be i you know i do think part of what was telling for me was that some of the reasons that women had expressed in my interviews did line up with some of the scholarship that has studied um other groups of women and you know so you know i think they run the gamut they from, you know, I grew up in a working class or poor household that didn't have money and I saw how much money it takes to sustain children. I don't want to, you know, have to be splitting my resources in that way. For some women, it was about um, uh, time and the ability to focus on themselves, to travel, to do things that they didn't feel would be as possible with children. Um, some women don't like children. Um, I think that's the common misconception, though, is that all child-free women must hate children. <laughs> and so, you know, I think there are women who legitimately, you know, don't really like being around children, don't want to spend their time with children. Uh, but there are a lot of other child-free women who are perfectly happy to spend time with other people's children, just not their own children. Um, so, yeah, I, there, are, there are, you know, so many different factors. And I think, you know, I think some of them can be primary for some women. Um, but but often there's a lot of sort of secondary reasons kind of wound around each other. Um, you know, I think for myself, part of it was, you know, being the oldest daughter, having felt like, oh, I've already been in a house with kids for a really long part of my life. I don't think I need to repeat that. Part of it was sort of financial for me and my husband. Part of it's the ability to have a little more freedom around what we do. So, you know, I, I think there are often multiple overlapping reasons women might make that choice. And those can be really, they often are really 
personal reasons, but they relate, I think, to the systems in place. So, so one of the reasons that someone would talk about is this idea that they as the mothers would be particularly expected to care for the children. And so I think that really speaks to the pressures put on women in particular. You know, men as fathers often don't experience the same amount of pressure to always be there for their children, to always be putting their children first. Um, And I I think there was a clear recognition from quite a few of my interviewees that that was a lot of pressure and that would be a lot um, for them to feel that they had to carry. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah and you address the idea that like women are we with this argument that the script that women are inherently caregivers right and mothers um which is everywhere yeah right yeah can't get away from it <laughs> and you know and these are the functions women also are inclined to do at work and in all the other ways of life right yeah. Yeah. That's a, that one is really difficult, you know, and I think um, even in writing the book, it gave me some self-reflexive moments like, oh, like, how am I still carrying some of that around with me? You know, I, I think that expectation um, is there for all women and to grapple with and to really be trying to figure out, like, what is what is the kind of care expectations being put on me and by who and how am I? How am I, um, yeah, how am I thinking through that? How am I um, thinking about my own life in, in as an important part of making decisions about the kind of care work I do? Yeah, you know, I'm just as a female faculty member, right? The number of our male colleagues do not have girls plopping down in their office to tell them they're pregnant. Yeah. It happened to our male colleagues. Yeah. Uh, yep. Of course, I didn't even have to ask why it is that that's com- you're coming to me with that book. <laughs> This is it, right? So, like, yeah. um, all these care expectations. But I think there's um, something that you point out through here reg- repeatedly is that there's these systemic ideas about normalcy, yeah. right? That um, that are just outdated. Yeah. And from the, so um, it's it's women are going to be primary caregivers. Well, that's based on an idea that they'll have time to do that or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think the I think we can feel a lot of growing pains. And I think I think another important point is that, you know, I, I things things have changed, albeit, you know, maybe more slowly than we might hope. Um, but I also think 
um, you know, as part of my book points out that there are some women who have always been expected to sort of juggle these things. And they're just women, uh, groups of women who I think historically haven't been studying, who haven't been highlighted, you know, women of color, poor women. They've they've been working. They've been working for a really long time. Um, they've been trying to juggle motherhood and care expectations for family members with work. And so I think, you know, we've seen particular growing pains in the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years as more women have entered the workforce and as, you know, more women have sort of shifted around. What does it mean to work? What does it mean to mother? Um, And so I think, you know, that maybe has been a long time coming because there have been groups of women who have already been doing that um, for much longer periods of time. Um, But those, the systemic, you know, I think in the United States, it's been an interesting time. We feel like maybe there's been some a two steps forward, 10 steps back sort of scenario happening. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think you can see a lot of fault lines um, because I think more people have started to push against gendered happiness groups. More people have started to question why are things this way? Why are these cultural beliefs embedded in these systems in these ways that are harmful to lots of people? Um, but but that change is, um, you know, it really undermines the power structures that are in place in those systems. And so I think we're seeing a lot of, um, uh, I guess I'll say, rebound um, effect where those systems are getting pushed, they're getting undermined, their fault lines seem pretty clear to a lot of people. Um, but some of those in power um, don't want to don't want to actually change the systems that are in place. No, I think um, a backlash period we're in the midst of. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I want to follow up on something you just talked about, you just mentioned, which is the racial component. Yep. Um, yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think when I was first starting this research, one of the things that really stood out was that there are studies of child-free women um, and child-free people, broadly speaking, um, but not a lot of studies about how women of color in particular have experienced the decision about whether or not to have children. Um, Kimia Dennis is one of the few I've seen, although her research is largely unpublished at this point, um, that really did the African diaspora in particular. In the United States, it's a really important part of thinking through reproductive rights is thinking through how um, women of color, in particular black women and also Native American women, have experienced reproduction so differently than white women. Um, and so um, the history of enslavement of black peoples and then also the um, forced immigration or um, migration of Native American peoples is really important because those things have formed part of the fabric of thinking about reproduction in the United States. And again, in particular, it's a particular location with particular history. Um, and so my study, you know, it it's not solely focused on the experiences of women of color, but I was fortunate enough to interview um, several women of color, um, several black women, um, uh, a Latina woman, um, an Asian American woman. And it was really important to me to try to highlight how that history um, of reproduction that has operated differently for white women and women of color really does rebound in important ways into the contemporary um, decisions that women are making. And so um, a couple um, of my interviewees talked about how knowing that they would bring 
um, a child into the a world that is racist, where that child is going to be discriminated against, where something tragic and terrible could happen to that child really did influence the decisions they were making. And that's a, um, a whole other layer of complexity, of, of um, history that women of color really have to grapple with that's different from white women. And I think, you know, you know, to, well, another really high percentage of um, women who choose to choose child-free existence have a lot of privilege. There's a lot of privilege yeah. there in being yep. able to not have kids. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah, I think that is another important point. I mean, I think that's highlight. It's been highlighted in the United States by the ways that um, abortion laws have been changing across different states um, and thinking about who even has the means to travel elsewhere if they need to get an abortion. Um, so there's a lot of privilege encased in who's able to make a decision that they aren't going to have children. And it's also presuming it's presuming that someone has resources and it's also presuming they've grown up in a particular kind of environment that has in some ways um, does in some ways, I think, protected them a bit as to the point that they've reached adulthood and can now make decisions about reproduction. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's not the same across different communities. Um, and I think that's really important as it is that there's privilege in being able to say, I don't want kids and to be able to take the measures to not have kids. Yeah. To even imagine being able to choose that, being able to have that kind of control over your body, a lot of yeah. can't even imagine that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. But, and then these are likely the same people who are going to be punished societally for all of the ways they're mothering poorly. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I don't really delve into that, but there have been other scholars who have studied like underage pregnancy and teenage motherhood. And, you know, there are all kinds of stigmas put on women for whatever choices they're making um, or whatever, what, you know, even the life things that have happened to them whether their choices or not um we get you know there's a lot of expectation and blame and um and so much for women who are who choose who are child free there's um is so much of like the discussion about why i there's such a, a conversation about why you you're child free is if some of these are okay reasons and some of them right. are not yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about that. It's I think this is one of the places where my interviewees and I, too, have often found myself making choices. You know, it's not uncommon um, to be asked, why don't you have kids? Um, but then you are sort of like, well, which answer, you know, do I want to do I want to open a conversation? That might be one answer. Is it is this just a passing fleeting I don't want to have to explain myself to a stranger situation. Do I even want to have to give an answer? So, yeah, there's a lot of choice making about the whys that we might give when someone's sort of like, why don't you have kids? That's so funny. I got to believe what people don't ask mothers that. Why do you have kids? Why not? <laughs> right. And yeah, the number of questions. Some of the answers I want to pop out, like, I'm just like, well, I had three, but I just had to get them away. Like, it's <laughs> like, such a rude question. Why are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know there were yeah, there were some interesting ways women um that I interviewed talked about giving responses. Some of them, you know, talked about being kind of funny about it. Um, some of them a couple of them, I think one had a friend who would, you know, sort of say something kind of rude about it just so people would just leave her alone after that. So yeah. Yeah, I it's that's that's funny. Um, which tends to I think um work into an identity or at least identity might be too strong a word although you you know maybe like the idea of integrating being child free into your being to such a degree that it it can become an identity yeah yeah i talk about that near the end you know i i think in the book i talk about being at a conference and and um there was a younger woman there who who was sort of had taken on this child free identity already she was young and she was so smart um she was thinking through like but now that I've said I'm child free, I don't want to look like one day I've changed my mind, like everyone is saying that I will, you know. And so I think there is a kind of um, there is a little bit of a trap there, I think, in thinking that once you've said something, you could never change your mind. Um, I think the assumption that women who choose not to have children and have said that to someone will change their mind is harmful um but you know there is a lot wrapped around the idea that child free becomes an identity that you couldn't possibly later change your mind about um and i think that can be really damaging I, I, you know i and i think a lot of the women i interviewed you know kind of near the end i had asked them what kinds of advice would you have for other women? And that's where I surfaced. Um, so this idea, like, don't get too trapped by what other people are saying. Try to think through for yourself what you want. And I, the women I interviewed weren't like, women should be child-free and why, you know, it, it was like, be thoughtful, you know, take time with yourself to really think through it and figure it out. Um, and a couple did say, you know, it should be okay if you change your mind. It shouldn't have to be this giant baggage laden decision, you know, because it's about your life, you know, and what you want in your life. No, and you should certainly shouldn't have to feel the weight of every other child free. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's hard. <laughs> uh, especially since we know that so few, I mean, the decision around childbearing is really important, but a lot of the a lot of that what happens around childbearing is not a matter of choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, it's hard. I think it's hard to know what choices you'll make until you're sort of in a situation. You know, um, and you know, I think child-free women, um, I think they try to be really careful about the decisions they make because it's so important. Um, you know, just like anyone else is making careful, you know, I, you know, I think if someone is able to make a choice about reproduction, then I think they are careful about that choice. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's hard to know until you're in a situation, what's the actual choice in that particular situation that might get made. Um, and there's a, I can't remember the name of the scholar. There is a scholar though, who'd written a really interesting article about, uh, women who had been child-free and then changed their minds and decided to have kids and the kind of juggling they then did to try to talk to um, the people around them about how they would be good mothers, despite the fact that they had said they were child-free at one point. So, so then there's this whole other sort of, oh, no, now I've got to prove that I will be a good mom because in the past I've said I really didn't want to be a mom. Um, so, I, you know, sometimes it just seems like 
um, no matter the reproductive choices getting made, there's <laughs> just always in the hot seat having to explain themselves to other people in ways that are very invasive sometimes, really intrusive. Yeah, really intrusive and questions that just, you know, maybe shouldn't have to answer. But how many times has someone asked you why you don't have kids? I, right. I yeah. Won't. I simply yeah. can't. No. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, I'm curious about the response you get when people, people just, you know, you meet someone at a cocktail party and they ask what you're working on. How does that go? What does that look like? <laughs> How does that go? Um, you know, so it depends on the room I'm in. We find with other scholars, you know, I think one of the things a couple of my interviewees pointed out is that um, child-free women or women who don't have children for whatever reason that might be um, is not completely unusual in academia per se. And so in those kinds of rooms, I feel like there is more of a scholarly interest in it. Um, when I'm out and about, though, in the real world, I'm talking with, you know, non-academic folks. Um, you know, there's actually usually quite a bit of interest, I think, because at this point, I think lots of people know people who have chosen not to have kids. And so um, I think it's become a more commonplace that, you know, someone will at least know someone who's chosen not to have kids, at least in some communities, some communities, maybe not. Um, and so there's usually a lot of interest, although um, I have had, there was a, a friend and they had taken the book on a plane and they were like, I don't know, like what kinds of reactions am I going to get from other people just because I'm reading this book, even though they were a parent. Um, so so I think it is the kind of topic where people can have strong reactions. Um, when I've been, you know, even this I you know I can just remember a couple of times just being like at a bar and getting asked like oh you know me and my husband getting asked like oh do you have kids I'm like no and just hearing the like oh you will one day and it's like no you know so I've had plenty of experiences like that of my own um uh but you know I think one of the things that's happened that's interesting and has happened for some of my interviewees is the older I get, the fewer kinds of interrogations I get about it. Um, maybe people are sensing that the, I think one of my interviews said maybe they're sensing like the, the biological clock is just <laughs> ticking down to the end and there's no time. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think, I think people are curious and interested. And like I said, I think it's becoming more common that people know someone. And I, you know, I think the lack of information sometimes means that they're just kind of curious about, you know, what did I find and what did my interviewees say and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, we're in a point right. another one of the tropes that you run across all the time is, is uh, the idea that biology is destiny when we're meant to be baby makers. Right. right? Like, yeah, as yeah. if, you know, as if we could do it by ourselves. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, often, you know, Sarah Ahmed, she's speaking really um, from a queer perspective, too. And I often sort of think about all of the um, kinds of conversations that are happening about reproduction um, for queer people as well, because those are really different kinds of conversations and a whole different, you know, sets of baggage being laid on different groups of people. Um, so. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of tie-ins in my mind. I'm thinking about Jack Halberstam and you know and yeah. and queer failure and about how reproduction like fundamentally you know reproduction is production is reproduction. 
There's right. a lot of a lot of like interesting places that this work is making me think is so your work is interesting and it, it ties in with a lot of interesting other work about how we just need um how the 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 stories we tell about what nor what is normative and how limiting that is just really don't fit. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of normal, you know, it's so predicated on particular people's bodies and particular people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I do think we're at a moment where people are really trying to push against that idea of normal. Um, but, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that presents a backlash then, you know, um, because, you know, when things shift around and, you know, normal doesn't exist in that way. You know, I think people empower people who have been used to being normal, the norm, seen as the norm. Um, I think that creates a lot of anger and anxiety um, when when you're trying to shift around, you know, who's seen as normal, what's seen as normal. Yeah. And I mean, we have the choice of kind of giving up on normal and making a lot yeah. feel better. Right. Or we could cling tight to normal and I have the privilege of a few. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can see which way we're going right now, but look, yeah, yeah, this is, I think this might be an inflection point, but I'm an historian. Maybe everyone thinks they live in an inflection. (laughs) Well, you know, I think for some of the women I interviewed, I think they felt like we were sort of at an inflection point, at least with this particular stigma around being child free. You know, I think um, they felt like there was you know, there are more people who are more visibly choosing not to have children. And there have been, you know, a few um, celebrities who have said I'm child free. And I think I think they I, I think some of my interviewees felt like it's coming into a moment where being child free is at least something we're talking about and recognizing and child free people are recognizing, oh, there are other child free people, too. It's not just me and my community. It's lots of people in different communities. Right. Next point. So I've taken up quite a bit of your time already. So I've just got my one one more question, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. My So I have kind of a dual life as a scholar. <laughs> so my child-free um, and happy bug is sort of in my life as a uh, feminist rhetorical scholar. Um, I also direct a writing program at George Mason. And so a lot of my scholarship is actually about directing writing programs and writing program pedagogy. So my next project is actually about um, uh, academics who run writing programs at really big institutions and the kinds of challenges and opportunities that that brings. So it's quite a different project, um, but related to the work that I do um, in a different kind of way. Sure. Probably similar methodology. Yeah, it is similar methodology. I've been interviewing. I've gathered um, some job descriptions and that kind of thing. So, you know, it'll be maybe even a little more mixed methods than um, this project was. But it is similar in the interviewing aspect um, and talking with folks about their experiences. That's very cool. All right. Hey, thank you so much for your taking, taking time to talk to me. It's been lovely. And I hope you have a great day. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was great talking with you.